Well, good morning. It's good to be together. Um, as you may have heard, if you read the newsletter, um, saw that we would be talking about money today. <laughs> Whether you knew that or not, I want to ask, what happens in you as you hear that? And we're going to be talking about money. What happens? What stirs in you? I was talking with someone even just this week and telling them that this would be the topic for Sunday, that it was stewardship season, and uh, he said, oh, thanks for the heads up. <laughs> and we laughed together because we know that there's something that is much deeper that is entangled in our hearts when it comes to money. That our money touches on, it pulls at, it feeds, it rules over things in our hearts. The world is able to draw it out of our hands pretty easily. <laughs> uh, Amazon, click to purchase, is just way too easy. <laughs> I click something, and in a couple of days, it's on my front porch. <laughs> it happens more often than it probably should for me. But it's easy. And it, and it works well because in that case, I get to decide what I want to do with my money, right? I can, it, it's good. It works for me then. But when it goes in the other direction and it doesn't fit with what I want, my stomach turns. You know, I, we sold our house recently and uh, we had a nice offer. And then the appraisal had to happen. And uh, at some point along the way, our square footage wasn't corrected accurately, and so the appraisal came in, and the square footage was less than what we all thought it was, and lenders won't lend more than what the appraised value of the house is, so we had to drop the price of the house, um, not by a small amount, <laughs> and I watched my heart sink, and I watched anxiety come, and I thought, oh, what am I going to do, what do Right? It, it happens. You, you've had similar experiences, perhaps. Some of you have walked through much more difficult financial experiences, job loss, all kinds of things. Those things get at us. They cause anxiety and fear. There's something about money that attaches itself to our hearts in ways that we get blind to. It puts, or we think it puts control in our hands over our uh, our comfort, uh, our security, our happiness, right? We, we sort of think that we can become the master of our fate in those areas, but it's an illusion. As Paul is going to say here, as we're going to see in 1 Timothy 6, the love of money is a trap. <laughs> and on top of that battle over our hearts, we, we as followers of Jesus, we know we should be giving it away. But sometimes we miss or forget or maybe we don't know the why behind it, the why behind giving it. So, I do want to talk to the kids, as James said. Kiddos, can I, get, I want to get your eyes for just a second, okay? Just for a few minutes because I need, uh, your parents are going to need your help. You might not think a whole lot about money, but your parents do. And I want, to, I want you to ask them two questions later. One. Why is it hard to give money away? Okay, why is it hard to give money away? And two, why does Jesus want us to give it away? All right? So listen for that. We're going to turn to God's Word now in 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 to 19. This is God's inerrant and infallible Word. 
Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we, can, we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ to which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and give him thanks for it now. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have spoken. You know us, you know our hearts, you know what we struggle with, and you've spoken into those things with grace and mercy and the goodness of the gospel. So I pray that the gospel would shine brightly this morning. Would you speak through me, a broken vessel saved by grace alone? You must increase, I must decrease for your glory, for our good. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I want to tell you about a friend of mine named Brian. Uh, some of you know Brian. He, uh, I met him several years ago through a tattoo interview. He's an artist. He's a tattoo artist. And uh, he'll tell you, uh, like probably many of us at some point in our lives, that our knowledge of the Bible was more through misquoted hearsay than anything else. And he always thought that this verse 10 that I read for you says... Money is the root of all evil. Maybe we thought that or have heard that ourselves. We probably have. But you know what it said? Did you hear what it said? Love of money is the root of all evil. Now, Brian grew up. He watched his parents fight over money and even end the marriage over money. Or so he thought it was about money. He watched himself get a first job and his first paycheck and he did all kinds of uh, not great things with his money, and he goes, oh, yeah, it's, a, it's that evil money stuff. It's, it's something that, that, we want, that we sometimes can just point to. But at some point, he started his own business. 
He opened up a tattoo shop, and he thought, well, I've got to work hard to make money for myself and for my employees. I've got to take care of these folks, but I'm struggling with the fact that isn't this money stuff evil? At some point, he heard what it actually says. Oh, it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Now, that was both freeing for him and also very challenging, and both of those things are true for us, right? Because that gets at our hearts. It gets at our loves. It changes everything, though. But as, as human beings, don't we like to, I know I do, I like to be able to put my finger on something outside of me to blame for my struggles, my failures, right? It's, it was this. It was this money stuff. If I could just get that out of my life, then I'll be okay, and I'll do better. <laughs> it's the blame-shifting game. You know, we've been doing it ever since Adam and Eve did it for the first time. Right, Eve blamed the serpent, Adam blamed Eve, and you know, it was every, where everybody's blaming everybody. But the Word of God does not let us do that. It takes us back to our hearts. We realize, like my friend Brian, like me and you, we realize that the problem's not outside of us. It's in here. It's in here. So, to commemorate, I suppose, this realization. My friend, at one point in his life, he got a tattoo, and it's on his neck. I can't imagine how that felt, but it says, the love of money is the root of all evil. E-V-O-L, which is love spelled backwards, because it was profound for him to see that the first word in this verse is love, and the last word is evil, and our loves can bring about great evil, depending on what it is that we love. See, that's what the passage here says. He ended up naming his shop after this, Evil Inc., E-V-O-L. We all have loves and desires and cravings. We all love something, and what we love we will worship, and it will change us. It will own us. And so as a believer, if we do not understand the place of money in our lives, we will either demonize it or we'll be mastered by it. But in reality, both of those things can be happening at the same time, right? We can be owned by it, but at the same time go, oh, this money stuff, that's bad. I don't know what to think about it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to be talked to about money. And on top of that, we don't always understand our why behind having it, like giving it, using it, and we don't do the deeper dive in the heart. Remember, as one of mine and James' mentors said, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. (laughs) That's true. But we see here that the gospel does not demonize money or material things. The gospel enters our lives to change our hearts, to change our loves, to elevate our desires above things that are counterfeit, to the only source of eternal life and therefore change how we view and use our money in the here and now. So this text in 1 Timothy 6, it really falls out into three parts that, are, that we'll walk through together. One is the destructive power of money. It speaks to that. But it speaks to the freedom from the power of money in our lives. And it speaks to the redemptive power of money. So... Let's go through that together. We've got to deal with the destructive power of money because it's there. Verse 9, Paul uses this word desire. 
those who desire to be rich. He comes back, he says it again, uh, into many senseless and harmful desires. Verse 10, he says cravings. These are words, this is the language of addiction. And we talked about that. I've referenced that when you know, Tyler with Unbound Grace was here recently. He was here last week at Story Church doing some training on how to walk with folks in addiction. But he made the important point to all of us that we're all addicted to something. Remember I mentioned Amazon earlier. He mentioned that. It can be an addiction. We're all addicted to something. And he made the point with us in Story Church that... Uh, some of the traits of addiction are things like lying and denial and blame shifting. And anybody struggle with any of those things ever? We all do. Because we may even be thinking now, well, I don't have an addiction problem. Oh, <laughs> maybe I do. In any recovery program that you run across, usually that first step is what? Admitting that you've got a problem. Paul refers to the love of money here as a snare or a trap. And as I looked into that, the Greek word behind that word, it made a reference to the Greek Trojan horse. You know that story? Greece was battling to try and conquer the city of Troy. And for the better part of a decade, they battled against the city to no avail. And they finally constructed this wooden horse, set it out in front of the city, and sailed home. And so the people of Troy thought, well, maybe this is a trophy of victory. So they brought it into the city, not knowing that inside there was, was a small band of Greek soldiers hiding. They brought the horse in. And that evening, that band of soldiers slipped out of the horse and silently conquered the city. Isn't that how our loves work? The things that we love have a way of creeping into our hearts and conquering our hearts without us knowing it. If it's anything other than Christ, it will rule over our hearts. In uh, the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis writes from the pers- the, about spiritual warfare, but from the reverse perspective, from the, the, the vantage point of the demons, right? And Wormwood's writing to his nephew, Screwtape, about the patient, the person that they are going after. And he says this to Screwtape. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circle of acquaintances, his sense of importance, the growing pressure of absorbing and agreeable work build up in him a sense of being really at home in earth, which is just what we want. Ed Welch says of addiction that addiction begins when wants become needs. See how that can happen with just about anything? You ever had a want become a need? Have you noticed that maybe happening at some point in your life? It happens in everyday life all the time. I remember when I got my first job out of college and I was making enough money to buy a car and then I bought a house And then I entered a new segment of society of the people who buy cars and houses, (laughs) right? You know, that happens. But then I I was in this segment of society, and I was looking around. I was like, man, I see people with better, nicer versions of those things. Oh, man, I want that too. I want a nicer car. I want a nicer house. 
But then at some point, those wants in me became needs because I was placing my value in how it made me feel and my, how it made me appear to people around me. See how that happens in us. And so there is actually, so that, there's, so that happens in us, but there's also actually a way that we can do this in reverse. We can actually have appearances or desire of appearances control us in reverse. We can play the comparison game in the opposite direction. Because when I don't have the nice stuff, when I don't have very much, I look at those that have it with disdain. Has that ever happened in our hearts? Oh, what extravagance. How many, I, I couldn't live like that. It's too much. How, how many bedrooms are in that house? Man, I, I wonder how much that car payment is. That's a lot. Um, I'm living simple, humble life here. That's just a reverse version of pride that can come out of us too, isn't it? You see, it's the flip side of the same coin. And whether we have wealth or we don't have it, we can be controlled by it either way. Either way, the Trojan horse of the desire for wealth can sneak into our hearts and conquer us. Now, how is that here in our neck of the world? We're in a nice, well-to-do suburban community. Everything seems nice. People have good morals outwardly. We have nice things. Well, according to uh, author Byron Yawn, uh, he says a different gospel has slipped in during the night unnoticed, a gospel he calls Suburbianity. It's the title of his book. Now, he's a, he grew up in the suburbs, and he's a pastor in a suburban community. And he writes this in his introduction. I'll just read a few lines here. Maybe more than a few, but bear with me. Uh, I'm a product of the American suburbs. Imperceptibly and relentlessly, this ever-expanding ring of American progress lying between the urban center and rural boundaries of our metro areas has shaped all of my existence. What I see and know of life is almost exclusively defined by the values that arise from this corridor of American life. Happiness, success, contentment, marriage, family, money, and career have all been defined by the suburbs. My perception of reality is primarily suburban. Generally, I've been raised to assume that the best life a person can know is measured by the square footage of a home that's near the best conveniences and products America has to offer. It is, after all, the American dream. To strive for anything less than this is aimless. Life is about being successful and settling down into suburban bliss. It's what we do. In the strangest twist of American ideals, we strive throughout life to carve out a brief moment at the end, at the end to finally live. It's a maddening circle of life. He says this later. The suburbs are treacherous, especially for Christians. The suburbs are possibly the hardest place on earth for the gospel to take hold. The true gospel, that is. Now, his words challenge me and challenge mine and our way of thinking. But we also hear Paul's words here, and they resonate in verse 10. It's through these cravings that some have wandered away from the faith. And Paul's words, God's word is so very relevant to us today. There's a song by a band called Act of Congress, a local band here in Birmingham. It's called All Right. The lyrics, some of the lyrics go this way. Will we believe the truth or lie? 
Will we ever see the disillusion problem, the heart beating inside, waking up in a cold sweat from our American dream? If we believe that it's down to us to secure life for ourselves, then all of life becomes transactional and money will become our master. I find in all of this just how hard it can be to pick my own heart apart, <laughs> to understand what's going on inside of me, I to pick apart my wants and my needs, my loves, my cravings. Am I honoring Jesus with my money or am I deceived? I, I don't know about you, but I need to hear the gospel. So we go there now. The freedom from the power of money comes from the gospel. It's in the gospel. Verse 6, Paul says, this is the first verse that I read. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Oh, that elusive contentment. <laughs> Always seems to be just out of reach, doesn't it? But we're trying to get it with our money, right? Or our things, or we're trying to work towards that. But it's always just around the corner. I can't quite get a hold of it. Paul seems to show us here there's a way to have it. To have contentment, that is. It's realizing that we can take nothing out of this world, but having our needs met in this world points to a contentment that must be beyond this world. Verse 11, he goes on to speak directly to Timothy. He says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. These are all the opposites of a transactional life. But how do we get it? How do we do that? Well, he goes on to say, take hold of eternal life to which you were called. That life, the life we're all longing for, the life we know we were made for. That feels just out of reach. He says take hold of it. But that life is something we feel like we're chasing after. That we're trying to produce for ourselves. But you and I can't produce it. We cannot make it happen. But look at verse 13. Charge you in the presence of God. Who gives life to all things. See that? God gives it. It's not taken. It's not produced. It's not bought or transacted. It's given by God. Remember our offering text that James read for us in Luke 12? It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And you think about that. that God's given us his kingdom. What, what more could we need? What more could we want? And then in, in the charge to the rich that we'll get into a little bit more in, in a moment, he says, set your hope not on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with everything. So what? So that we can enjoy it. <laughs> That's what it says there. But how? How do we do this? How, what if you're sitting there right now and you're going, you know, I just don't feel it. I believe in Jesus, I'm, I belong to him, but I'm still struggling. I still have anxiety. Well, go back to verse 12. Take hold of eternal life. What does that mean? Well, I think one of the things that it means is to preach the gospel to yourself every day. I think that's part of what it means to fight the good fight of faith. 
to preach the gospel, to drill it into our hearts, to, to drill into your heart that, that your name is engraved on Jesus' hands. We think money gives us security. What could be more secure than being named for eternity on Jesus' own hands? What could be more secure? Because he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He had it all, and then he gave it all for you and I. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 is our assurance of grace earlier. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. 1 Corinthians 3, all things are yours. Whether Paul, Apollos, Cephas, life, death, all things are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God. Jesus says to you and I, everything that's mine, it's yours. Remember, he gives us the kingdom. It's why I think Paul's able to just break out into praise mid-paragraph here. It's like he's praising there when he says, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's praising God because he's this realization and guess what? We have to keep reminding ourselves of these truths. Preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. When these realities land in our hearts, we will find ourselves freer than we were before. So how can we know? How can we know we're being freed from the power of money? Destructive power of it. I'll give you three things that I think are relevant here. There's plenty more we could say. But one, gratitude. Am I slowly shifting from seeing things in my life as a hindrance to me producing my own life, my own kingdom, to seeing everything that comes as a gift? Two, worship. Are the constant thoughts of my mind slowly shifting away from intense focus on the things that I can't control? <laughs> Right, that's all the anxieties and fears that come around things that I can't control. Am I, am I shifting away from focus on those to enjoyment of Jesus? We're not going to do any of these things perfectly, by the way, but we can grow into them. Third, contentment. There's that one again. Am I slowly shifting from frantic fear from one life transaction to the next? Like, you know, just that next thing. If I can get to that next thing, then I'll be okay. If I can get to that... Next thing, if I'm shifting away from that type of living into being able to be present in the moment and doing life on God's terms. These are all signs of growth, of being freed from the destructive power of money. But guess what that means? We can then see money and its redemptive power. There's a third point here. Remember, the Bible didn't say money is the root of all evil, right? It's love of money. It's our hearts. It's what's going on in here. So Paul turns in verse 17 to speak to those with money. He says there, he gives us, he gives them, he gives us all. By the way, we all, relative to the world, we all have a, we're all pretty wealthy. But he gives us some gospel-centered ways of thinking about money and wealth. One, says, don't be haughty. Money can be very deceiving. Success can fool us into thinking that we are successful. 
it can, it, can, it can lull us into thinking that we can solve many of our own problems or other people's problems with money and resources and material things, right? We get the sort of savior complex, like, well, I'm, I guess I've been pretty successful. I've got some things, like, I, could, I can help fix this problem. I can help fix my problem uh, with resources. We forget that we're not the savior. We remember our humble place as desperate sinners in need of grace, just like the poorest of the poor. We are all the same. By the way, there's nothing more humbling than being a rich American going to the slums of Uganda and seeing believers there with nothing, but they are rich in joy in their Savior. Way more than what I may have even arrived in myself. It's humbling. I've seen that. It'll change you. Second thing that Paul says here, don't set your hope on wealth's uncertainty. We've spoken to this before, but again, it made me think of uh, our talk on our core value of hope, that sermon. Hope can't be produced, remember? It can only be given, and God richly gives us the kingdom. Speaking of kingdom, uh, that point, the kingdom is uh, important for this third takeaway. Paul says, be rich. He says to the, those with wealth, those with money, he says, be rich in good works. Generous giving. So to store up treasure as a good foundation for the future, to take hold of what is truly life. What is he talking about there? We know he's not saying uh, doing good works or good deeds that will secure our salvation. That does not line up with Scripture at all. So that obviously is not what he's saying. He's also not saying, hey, make good financial decisions now so you've got a, a secure future. I mean, there's wisdom, of course, that we do that. But he's not talking about that either. What is he talking about? Building Jesus' kingdom with our money, with our resources, do, you, do we believe that Jesus' reign is the best thing for this world? Do we believe that Jesus' reign is the best thing for this world? Then wouldn't we want to participate in a revolution of grace in this world? I'll, I'll make this point. I'll close with this story. I was with uh, the Spangers. Our, those are our ministry partners in Germany, our planting uh, church in Germany. I was just with them a few weeks ago. And by the way, your, it is through your generous giving into our missions account, our missions giving, that allows us to be a part of that kingdom work in Germany and our other partners, by the way. So it is that, that we get to be a part of the kingdom being built in those places. But we were together, and we were riding in the car, and we had a few long car rides, and we started talking about good works. Good works are one of the most confusing things for a believer sometimes. What's the role of good works, Right? On one hand, the uh, legalist approach would say, well, you've got to do good works to be accepted by God. No, that, that can't be right. On the other hand, there's like, no, good works don't matter anymore. We're accepted as we are. It's grace, and we're in, and we're good. We don't have to worry about good works. And You see how that actually can play into our giving. Well, do I, I should give, so I'm accepted. No, no, no. Well, I sh no, we don't have to worry about giving. It's not important. Wait, that doesn't sound right either. And Stephen made the point with a story. He said, imagine a young man standing outside of a flower shop debating buying flowers for his wife on their anniversary. And he, he stopped an older man on the sidewalk and said, excuse me, sir, in order to be a good husband, do you think I ought to buy 
my wife flowers or not? To which the older man looks at the young man a little sideways and says, young man, I think you're missing the point. The flowers are not about you. They're about your marriage. They're about cultivating a healthy marriage, which in turn creates a healthy home environment, raising a family that can move out into the world for good. So you see, these flowers aren't about you being or not being a good husband. They're just, do you see how that translates to our money? It's not about being a, trying to be accepted or do the right thing or check the box. It's way bigger than that. It's about believing does Jesus' reign really the best thing for a broken world? And if so, we get to participate in doing that work. The question then is no longer, should I give? Should I not give? Uh, how much should I give? It's that, that can be met with that same sideways, tilted head response of, I think we're missing the point. <laughs> it isn't about sta our standing before God or being a good person. It's about whether or not we believe Jesus' reign is the best thing for a broken world. If we do believe that, then we will be given the opportunity. We will see the opportunity to participate in a revolution of grace that will change this world. And you can invest in that world by giving our money. <laughs> we have three ways that we do that here at Christ Church. The ministries, the missions, and the mortgage. They all go to kingdom work. Is Jesus reigning in your own heart? Do you believe that you get to participate in his kingdom coming to bear in your sphere of influence? It's true. It's true. You do. And your money has great redemptive power when we see it that way. Are we free in Christ from money's destructive power? Are you participating in its redemptive power? When those realities land in our lives, we will begin to see ourselves giving money away in proportions that don't make sense unless we've met Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it frees us from the things that control us in this world. But more than that, Lord, you are reigning in our hearts, and you invite us in to participate in the expansion of your kingdom in this world that so desperately needs it. So, Father, you know our struggles. You know each and every one of us sitting here this morning that we do struggle. We do have anxiety and fear. You know that. You graciously enter in with the goodness of the gospel, the reminder of the truth that we are engraved on the palms of your hands. Lord, let us, let that truth, let the goodness and truth and beauty of the gospel sink deep into our hearts to change us, to transform how we see our money and our resources and all those things, that they might be used for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name we ask.